0: The the Bible uses the language of the heart to speak about the core of us, the core of a person, the center, uh, the control center of what what drives us. So and so, when we speak about the heart, sometimes we are only speaking about affections. But when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's speaking about the the central controlling center of us as peoples, but, but philosophers and theologians have debated for a long time what actually is the center of a person, what actually do we mean by heart, and so some have argued throughout the years that it's thinking, right? This is where you get the image of you're a brain on a stick. This is all about just thinking. That's, that's what the heart is. It's about thinking. So then if that's true, then the deepest problems of people is that their thinking has gone wrong. They believe lies and need to come to a proper understanding. So then this would set the agenda for discipleship. To to help that person would mean to help them to disbelieve lies and to believe the truth. That discipleship would be focused on training in truth. So we might call this the cognitive emphasis about our thinking. Or is the center of a person his will, his capacity to choose? If so, the deepest problems people will have is that they make rebellious choices, right? They make wrong decisions. So the agenda for discipleship will center on bringing people around to right choices that please God. We might call this the volitional emphasis, the, the will. Or the center of the person is his or her affections, desires, longings, emotions, If so, then the deepest problems people have come to they love the wrong things. They're loving the wrong things, and they have disordered loves, and they're loving things that they shouldn't love too much. They're loving them too much. And so they need to love the right things. They need to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And so in this case, the agenda for discipleship would be to promote renewed love, new desires, new longings. We might call this the effective emphasis. But the truth is, we must keep all three of these together. Not reduce the heart to only cognitive. Not reduce the heart to only volitional. Not reduce the heart to only effective. But hold them all together because really at the end of the day, there are three perspectives on the heart. Your heart, the control center of a person, includes your thinking, your loving, and your action. Your choices, your will. It's the irreducible complexity, volition, cognitive, and effective. Now, at our church, if, if you are new, we talk a lot about what we love and why we love it. We really want renewed love, renewed desires for you. We also talk a lot about what you think, what you believe, your doctrine, what, what are you standing on? How do you see the world? How do you make sense of this world? How do you interpret the things around you? We talk a lot about that. And, and this morning, James is going to push us to also consider the volitional emphasis, what we do, how we act, what we choose. We've got to consider it. And I think that's why just James in general has been good for our church up to this point is because he's going to push us maybe in places that we're uncomfortable or we're not used to pressing into. And so James 1, talking about volitional emphasis of your heart. James 1, verse 26. Look at it with me. James 1, 26. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue. His religion is useless, and he deceives himself. All right, welcome. James is a bit confrontational, right? He's that guy that just cuts straight to it. Like, hey, man, good to see you. How have you been? Good week? Yeah, good morning. Your religion is useless. Okay, thanks, man. All right. I feel real pep in my step. I'm going to walk out here. Wonderful. Now, we must start with this word, religion, because we often use it in a derogatory way, right? When you, when you, when even you, if you're a Christian, you say, uh, man, that person's real religious, you might be meaning, uh, I really don't prefer that person, I don't want to be their friend, because we use it in a derogatory way, right? Religion is often uh, what we mean by mechanical and fake and rote, external, I mean, even in our membership class, we use Tim Keller's juxtaposition between the gospel and what we use by the word religions to, to, to make a point, to, to clarify, this is not what we're talking about. This is what we are talking about. You, you may have imported your uh, definition of religion or spirituality or Christianity into this conversation, uh, but we want to clarify, and so we'll, we'll say things. We'll, we'll quote Tim Keller who says, religion says that if we obey God, He will love us. The gospel says that God has loved us through Jesus so we want and can obey. Now that's beautiful, right? That's good. But it definitely does hone in religion in a derogatory way. The goal of religion is to get from God such things as health, wealth, insight, power, and control. The goal of the gospel is not the gifts God gives, but rather God as the gift given to us by grace. Mm, That's good. Like, if that's truly religion versus the gospel, I don't want to settle for religion. I want the gospel. I want you to want the gospel. One more. Religion leads to an uncertainty about my standing for God because I never know if I've done enough to please God. The gospel leads to a certainty about my standing for God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, that's helpful to clarify since we can easily get the Christian life twisted but it does put a negative connotation on the word religion. For James, for this context, the word religion is not negative for him. It's not put in this way. Religion can be pure and undefiled, and religion can be tainted and useless. What he's meaning by religion is that he's really accentuating your beliefs in action your beliefs in action. J.A. Mortier defines this, this word religion for us so we're understanding where James is coming from. He says, religion is a comprehensive word for the specific ways in which a heart relationship to God is expressed in our lives. This is what he's talking about. How is it expressed in your life? It's, it's faith working through love towards people and situations. That's what I'm talking about with religion. Faith working through love towards people and situations. How is your relationship with God actually expressed in your actions, in your love, in your care, in your communication with others and how you respond to specific situations? Why? Because religious talk is cheap. Genuine religion is seen in real action. I mean, you can make a lot of claims and intellectually assent to a lot of sound doctrine, but genuine faith produces love in action. And that's what he's saying. Genuine religion, genuine faith in Christ produces love in action. Or to quote Martin Luther, he said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, And suffers nothing, is worth nothing. So if if your religion, your relationship with God is really just intellectually assenting some to some right doctrines, even if those are good and right true doctrines, if it doesn't cost you anything or doesn't lead you to actually express your love and action towards others, useless. It's useless. This isn't merely identifying as a Christian. This is following Jesus in all of life. And that's what James is about. The wisdom for everyday life from James is, I want you to submit to the master. Back to James 1.1. The master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of life, and that's going to affect everything you think, love, and do. Thinking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, acting like Jesus. Now, James doesn't give us a comprehensive list of religious activities to give us a test. Like, he doesn't talk about the spiritual disciplines. He doesn't talk about corporate worship. He doesn't get that. but he gives us three things. Three things, three behaviors as a sufficient test of our religion. So, I don't know what you thought about coming this morning Sometimes you get a surprise, surprise this morning, it's a pop quiz, okay? This is a pop quiz this morning, not because I like pop quizzes, but because how James writes, or to say it better, how the Holy Spirit has written through James to us for our everyday life. So this is a test, a moment, not to regurgitate information that you've heard from other people, but to evaluate your heart and life. This is a test. First test. First behavior. We control our tongues. Now, this is the second time James has a dressed speech. Back in verse 18, what do you say? he say? He said, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And now he says we are to control our tongues. James is not calling us to be silent monks. But he is calling us to be disciples who bridle our tongues. That, that's the image of the language, control your tongue. A bridle in the mouth of a horse. He's, he's going to go into greater detail in, in chapter 3. Actually, this, these two verses are essentially a thesis for the rest or an outline for the rest of the book. And so he's going to talk about the tongue. He's going to talk about holiness. And he's going to talk about how you, you treat the needy, the poor. And he's going to go into greater detail in the next chapter. Three chapters but right here he already shows us your tongue is like a wild horse it's like a wild horse it's wild and all over the place until you break it in and harness it so test is number one do you have a wild horse in your mouth And that's not a weird joke about speaking in tongues. That's a joke about uh, can you control your mouth? Do you control your language? Do you control your communication? Do you have the ability to restrain what needs to be restrained? To change what you think and actually communicate? As my wife has told me, uh, you you didn't have an on deck circle. So, in baseball, there's someone standing at the plate ready to hit the ball. The pitcher's pitching to them. Uh, right off the side, not in the dugout, but off to the side is the person on the on deck circle who's waiting to bat. And back in my 20s, uh, that guy wasn't, wasn't present. Meaning, I didn't have any space in between my mind and my mouth. Whatever I thought just rushed out. Rushed up. That's a wild horse. She also called me a perpetual line crosser because we would keep getting close to a line and I'd be like, oh, I can't wait to push over that line. Why? I have a wild horse in my mouth. There's no control here. Anything I think or what I think is going to be funny or what's going to push the limits, what's going to shock people, I'm going to throw it out there because my tongue is wild, uncontrolled, does whatever it wants. Is your tongue Wild. Does it do whatever it wants is it buck authority is it unrestrained is it volatile a wild tongue is powerful and harmful harmful i mean you call your spouse names you flatter your friend because you want her to like you you trim the truth to avoid a conflict you yell at your child about their messy room You curse at the driver on the interstate. You demean others in the midst of a conflict because all you really care about is the argument, winning the argument. You indulge in gossip. You're better at pointing out wrong than asking for forgiveness. You use your words to hurt others rather than help them. Your communication stays ambiguous and impersonal, never gets precise and intimate with other people. Your words make you the center of attention. And James is saying, no, no, we must control our tongues. Because if we're going to be a people who gather on Sundays and claim the name of Christ and say, this is what he's done to us, He's who he's made us. This is how he's changed us. And we say all that and stand all that and don't control our tongues. Our religion is useless. And you're actually deceived. You're deceived. Jesus speaking about the tongue gives us real insight, wisdom in what's happening with our tongue with this wild horse in our mouth. Luke six forty-five. Jesus said, a good person... Produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So so really, if I'd go back and tell you about my on deck circle. It's really not a problem of I had some space or I was, I was maybe a little bit slower to speak. There's a little bit that was helpful for me. But what really needed change was my heart because your tongue is a heart issue. That's what needs to change. Paul Tripp writes Your words are always in pursuit of some kind of kingdom. You are either speaking as a mini king seeking to establish your will in your relationship and circumstances, or you're speaking as an ambassador of the king, seeking to be a part of what the king is doing. There is no end to the battle of words when too many kings talk to each other. When our words reflect the self-focused desires of our hearts rather than God's work of reconciliation, there's no end to our struggle. When we use words to establish our will rather than submit to God's, we plunge into difficulty. James' point. Religion that doesn't change how you speak is pointless. Faith in Christ without controlling your tongue is useless. And this is a big deal. Why does James introduce this and come back to this in James 3 and spend so much time on your tongue? Is because your words have power. And I know you're like, ooh, is he going to get into some, like, word of faith stuff that's saying he's going to speak stuff into... No, you don't have to believe that to also believe that your words have power, because your words do have power. They have power. Eugene Peterson translates Proverbs eighteen twenty one this way. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit, you choose. If you honestly evaluate your relationships, your parenting, your uh, co-workers and your relationship with them, your words can build someone up where they get excited and want to keep going, and you can also demean and crush their spirit. Your words have power. They can be powerfully constructive and powerfully destructive. Your words are either going towards life, Proverbs says, or death. Words kill, that's towards death. And words kill summarizes all the angry, hurtful, slanderous, selfish, bitter, divisive, and demeaning forms of talk. Powerfully destructive. Words give life summarizes all the encouraging, comforting, peaceful, unifying, upbuilding, grateful, and loving forms of communication. So, so much in the book of Proverbs, so much about wisdom is on your Tuesday, you have a fork in the road. On your Thursday evening, you have a fork in the road. You can go this way where words kill and demean and uh, punish and destroy the person in your life, or you can give life, build up, and courage. This is the choice so often with wisdom. You don't have 70,000 options, you have two. May they look a little bit different than the person next to you? Yes, but you have two options, words give life or words kill. Again, Paul Tripp, Because our words have power and direction, they always produce some kind of harvest. It will be life, harvest of comfort, encouragement, hope, insight, unity, and joy, or a death harvest of fear, discouragement, falsehood, division, and sadness. Words can open up the mysteries of the universe for someone. Words can crush a person's spirit, excite, anger, or stimulate love. Words have Power. So the wisdom for our everyday life is this, bridle your tongue. bridle your tongue. Control it, restrain it, break it in, and harness it. Don't let it be a wild horse in your mouth doing whatever it wants. Address the stuff in your heart because that's where you speak from. Like, we shouldn't, I don't, I don't know if we should ever say, I'm sorry, like this. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to see that, say that. We should say, I'm sorry, I said what I meant. Because everything you say flows from your heart. I'm sorry, I said what I mo- meant. Because I did. It was there. It's back to that cup analogy I gave you a few weeks ago of like, why is there water on the floor? Because water was in the cup. Why did it come out of you? Why did you speak it? Why did you say that to that person? Because it was in your heart. So address the stuff in your heart. That's where you speak from. Your tongue and your problem with your tongue is an issue with your heart. So first test of genuine religion. Do you control your tongue? Second, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion for God the Father is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, second thing, we look after orphans and widows. Genuine and clean religion is both private and public. I mean, faith in Christ can't remain privatized and individualistic, it goes public. Faith in Christ encompasses what you love, believe, and do. So if you say, back to back to James's kind of if, so if anyone thinks or if anyone lacks wisdom, he's going to do that multiple times in this book. But I'll say it this way if you say you have God as your father, but you don't reflect his heart, you're deceived. You're deceived. Now this is this is gritty again confrontational it confronts those here who think they are christians but truly aren't in the south we have a lot of professions but that doesn't equate to being sons and daughters of the father we have a lot of people that say they believe that doesn't equate necessarily to being a genuine disciple Of Jesus. Friend, you can't hide behind that prayer you said when you were seven. You can't put weight on your church attendance. I know so many people that I've talked to throughout my life, when I ask them about Jesus, they talk about the church. Now, of course those go hand in hand, right? Of course. Of course. You can't say you love Jesus and not love the church because it's his bride. But... To only talk about the church when I ask you about Jesus is to put a lot of your weight, a lot of your confidence in your attendance or your relationship with your church and not your relationship with Jesus. So you can't stand behind that. You can't put weight on that. You can't stand on, I default to Christianity because I grew up in the South. You are not justified by your works, but you are justified for works. So if there's no fruit of a new heart, you have to question if you're a Christian or not. This is James' confrontation. If your religion, if your belief in Jesus that you say you claim doesn't change how you speak, doesn't push you to reflect the heart of God and actually look after orphans and widows, then I would say, I don't know if you're really a Christian. You can't stand on it. There's no fruit of a new heart. What's going on? So is your faith bearing fruit? Are you honestly like God, your father? Now, I'm not saying perfect. Hope you know I'm not saying that but does your heart do you have a new heart that that what formerly hated God and loved the world now actually loves God at the deepest part of your heart and hates evil and actually wants to reflect his heart and you see his heart very clearly throughout the scriptures one example psalm 68 God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows so if you're genuinely a Christian, genuine faith will look like caring for orphans and widows because we reflect the heart of our Father. We care for those who are needy and in desire straits. So like we said with, with, with a couple of weeks ago, James said, "The Bible is like a mirror." And so James is showing you this is who you are. And what, if, if what you see this morning by the Spirit's power, if he's revealing to you that you're not a genuine Christian, a genuine disciple with a new heart, then that's what he's calling you. He's not just exposing the mirror so that you feel condemned. He's exposing the mirror so that you would see the condition in your end so that you would throw your life on the, the work of Jesus in your place. That you would put your faith in him this morning. That you would give over, confess this, I'm self-righteous. I've I put all my, my eggs in the basket of my works and my ability. I'm going to turn and confess you are the one alone who can save me. You lived the perfect life. You died for my sin in my place, though you were sinless. You rose from the grave to justify me. You reign right now at the right hand of the Father. I believe you. I submit to you. I'm going to follow you. That's the fork in the road this morning if you're not a Christian. And then for Christians, you have to see Is this test still messing with me in the sense of that I've put so much emphasis on something that I've minimized other things? I've put so much emphasis on the cognitive, my thinking, my belief, maybe my loves, to the chagrin of my choices, my actions. I justify... My usage of pornography. I justify my usage of how I speak to my kids. I justify uh, the the uh, demeaning gossip, slander that I get into by like I'm a Christian. God will forgive me. It's okay. I'm gonna keep going to that well. I'm gonna keep operating in that. And James is saying, no, no, don't deceive yourself. If 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 anyone thinks. your religion is genuine, then it's going to lead to controlling your tongue and looking after orphans and widows. I mean, for this one, this is why we have prayed for and encouraged orphan care from the beginning of our church, that we want to have this this ethos, this culture of foster care and orphan care in our church because this is what God has done to us. So we're all called to orphan care. Now, would that look different? Of course. I'm not saying everyone here is called by God to enter into the foster system. But I am saying we're all called to this, to care for, to look after orphans and widows. Now, that might look like some of us fostering. That might look like some of us adopting. That might look like some of us giving. That look like some of us giving respite care for those that are uh, adopting or fostering. That might look like us coming alongside and helping or praying. But we're all called to it. Because the father's heart beats, pounds for adoption. Like I I could tell you firsthand, adoption is difficult. And uh, unbeknownst to me, comes with a lot of spiritual warfare. But our adoption was costly to the father. Right? Free to us but cost him the very life of his son. So our our hearts must pound for orphan and widow care because that's how our father's heart pounds. Serving and helping those in need. We have widows and widowers in our church. You have widows and widowers in your neighborhood. Faith, working through love, will look after them. So being confrontational like James, what's your plan? What's your plan to actually look after orphans and widows? How will you reflect the Father heart of God? We control our tongues. We look after orphans and widows. The third test. We keep ourselves unstained from the world. So genuine religion keeps one unstained, uncorrupted, undefiled. What does that mean? Well, it's all-encompassing. It's, it's what I was saying at the very beginning in the introduction. Not contaminated with the world's teachings. Not contaminated with the idol's around us, not contaminated with the world's habits. We are in, but not of the world. Jesus didn't create a monastic subculture that was separate from uh, the rest of culture, the city, and just say, hey, we're all gonna hang out in the mountains. No, God, Jesus created a countercultural people who would engage the world while clinging to him. Who are influenced by his word and spirit. Rather than the world's assertions and habits. And so the test would be like this. If, if I could, uh, uh, why would I pull it? Uh, I don't need to pull out your heart. If I could x-ray your heart, not your literal heart. You with me? Okay. If I could x-ray your heart, what would it reveal? Like if, I, if there was some imaging that we could see that, the state of your soul would have big blotches on it, cancerous tumors on it, meaning it's stained, it's corrupted, it's defiled. Do you, maybe this is a helpful diagnostic question, Do you think like Jesus or do you think like the humanistic system around you? Do you love the Father like Jesus or do you love the American idols all around you like greed and control and comfort and individualism? do you live like Jesus or do you live like every other neighbor on your street? Where maybe you merely intellectually assent to some doctrines, but in your life, we wouldn't be able to tell any difference between 1130 spring branch and 1132 spring branch and 1134 spring branch. people who have been born again, birthed by God's word, as he said earlier in this chapter, birthed by the gospel, will think and love and act differently. Why? Because we have a new control center. We have a new heart. Our heart's different. And so it's going to bear fruit in our speech, in our caring for those that are needy, our pursuit of holiness, Keep saying confrontational, but maybe the word for James right here is just frank, direct. So to be direct, if this is a test, how did you score? Because James is not content with writing a letter to disciples. Of Jesus and it not changing anything. James is not content with the followers of Jesus two thousand years later after writing this letter to not change anything. You can see it clearly expressed in the last pericope, the last paragraph. Don't be a hearer only. James is, is not thrilled with us coming into the space, hearing someone talk about the Bible, and us walking away and nothing has changed. Not content. But press that a little bit deeper because I don't know if, what your opinions are about James. The Holy Spirit has written this and is speaking to us now, meaning James is dead. A Holy Spirit is alive, present, not content. I would dare to say I could probably categorize it as a quenching of the Spirit if you repeatedly come over and over again to corporate worship, listen to someone talk about the Bible, and don't do anything with it. So not only how did you score, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Like have a conversation with a friend, with a, with a spouse, with someone, the community group about this, but also make a plan to move towards something. Repent of your false thinking. And not only your thinking, repent of your false love. And not only your thinking love, repent of your inaction or your broken action or your wrong action. Repentance is going to uh, uh, encompass all those three perspectives of your heart. The cognitive, volitional, and affective. So something must change. And it begins with hearing the word. Repenting of what the Spirit is convicting you of. And then moving forward and bearing fruit with that repentance. So let's get practical. Let's submit to God's word in this and actually move towards action. I'm gonna pray for it. Father, I pray for this. I pray that we would get practical, that we wouldn't be content ourselves with hearing and thinking. And Lord, you would move us as a people to act on your word. To do the good work in our hearts that needs to change in regards to our speech, our care for the orphan and widows, and for uh, our holiness, our sanctification. I pray you would work in us. You would change us. By your word and spirit this morning. And I pray also that you would empower us, knowing that it's the gospel that drives us to this action. And it's your spirit that puts the wind in our sails towards this action. That you're not calling us to, to just try to muster up the strength, but that you are with us. And for us, changing our motivations by the gospel. Emboldening us and strengthening us by the power of your spirit. We need your power. In Christ's name we pray.